Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in this week's programme we talk to Mark Hoban of the Conservative Party and we find out what their thoughts are on inflation, on property and on gold. And of course we find out what they think of Gordon Brown. We also talk to Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, who gives us an update on his view of the UK housing market and of gold. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com Mark Hoban is the Conservative Member of Parliament for Fareham in Hampshire and is Shadow Financial Secretary to the Treasury. And it's a pleasure for me to be interviewing him now. Hello, Mark. Hi, Dominic. And, um, well, let's start off. What, what exactly does the Shadow Financial Secretary to the Treasury do? Well, my responsibility within the Treasury team is to look after the regulation and the taxation of the financial services sector. And that's the role traditionally in government the Financial Secretary does. Mm-hmm. This government, they've given the most junior person in the Treasury team that role. Uh, we think it needs a bit more umph and gravitas. OK, well... Let's let's talk about this government. Let, let's talk about Gordon's Gordon Brown's time as uh, as Chancellor. Let me ask you first: What did he get right? Well, I thought the first thing he got right, and certainly I think we were quite slow to acknowledge, is actually independence of the Bank of England. Well, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you: How independent is it? Well, that's a good question because you know, Mervyn King and the Monetary Policy Committee have the power to set in interest rates independent of mm-hmm. the Chancellor, and it's a uh, it's a change from what has been traditional mm. British political and economic history. Uh, I think one of the issues that people look at now is who appoints the members of the Monetary Policy Committee? Mm. Uh, what's the appointment process? Should it be more open and transparent? Because one of the concerns has been that Gordon Brown has pretty much had full control over this. He's looked at who he wants to appoint. Mm. He's rung them up with sometimes minutes notice apparently, to say, do you want to be on the NPC or don't you? And you know, I just think that actually if we are to have confidence in the NPC and actually strengthens people's confidence in the NPC, I think people do see it as being independent. Mm. I think we need to make the appointments process much more transparent. So we do need to perhaps advertise for vacancies. Right. Uh, we do need to ha- make sure there's a proper open process uh, and that... Things I'd like say that you know the, the governor needs to make sure that he's involved in that process to check the balance of the committee mm-hmm. is is right, and I also think that you know in the states you have confirmatory hearings uh, for a whole range of public officials. Mm-hmm. The Treasury Select Committee at the moment have informal hearings. Perhaps they should have a more formal role as part of the appointment because I think actually it's important not only to be independent but to be seen to be independent, and not just in terms of interest rate setting but also in the way in which people become, particularly external members, are appointed to that committee. Initially, the, the, the Bank of England wasn't independent. Then Gordon made it independent. And then, with this Northern Rock fiasco and the kind of Mervyn's U-turn, it struck everyone that, in fact, the Bank of England wasn't that independent and that they'd been lent on. So is this kind of another third way? Well, I, it's always been part of the set up post-97 
that the bank, the FSA, and the Chancellor would cooperate mm -hmm. uh, on maintaining financial stability. I suppose this is the first real test since 97 of that regime. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think we need to learn the lessons from that and understand how it worked in practice. Um, and obviously the Treasury Select Committee having their inquiry at the moment and they saw uh, not seeing Northern Rock, the FSA in the bank and shortly to see the Chancellor and they'll have to be able to establish I think uh, what the dynamics of that relationship mm -hmm. were uh, and how they worked in the last month or so. Do you think they should have um, guaranteed savers? Well I think they got themselves into a situation where no one had fully thought through what the impact would be on consumers of announcing the Bank of England to become the lender of last resort. And you know, I don't think that the Chancellor, the Governor of the, F the FSA, and perhaps even Northern Rock themselves, really understood that as soon as that announcement was made, that people would be queuing round the block. And actually, because no one, I think, got the message across about what lender of last resort really meant, the government were forced, I think, to issue, you know, to make to, to issue that guarantee mm -hmm. uh, because that was the only way to stop the queues. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they got themselves into that hole because I think no one had really thought through the communication. And we, what's, there were alarm bells already about how people understood or misunderstood the, the, this sort of the uh, way in which banks use the facilities that, at the Bank of England. Because if you go back to uh, before Northern Rock, when Barclays used the overnight facility a couple mm -hmm. of times, you know, there's some quite adverse comment right. about the use of that facility. So someone somewhere should have thought, well, if that happens for Barclays, and it was just using the overnight facility, how much greater will the impact be when we announce that Northern Rock is used, uh, using the facilities of the, you know, the Bank of England as a lender of last resort, mm -hmm. and should have thought through that process. Now... When Gordon sold all our gold, or two-thirds of our gold, what, what did you think about that decision? And, 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 I mean, why do you think he decided to do that? Well, his argument at the time was to diversify um, Britain's uh, reserves. And I think, it was, I think from my recollection, it was a time that the euro came on stream as well. Mm -hmm. So there was part of that process. I think he made two classic mistakes. One is to sell at the bottom of the market. Mm -hmm. And what's even worse, if you're going to sell quite significant amounts of gold, is to tell everybody you're going to sell lots of gold. So he's inevitably going to get a, a low price for it. But, I mean, how, how serious a, a decision was it in the, in the grand scheme of things, given, I mean, you know, in, in times of national crisis, gold can be a fairly useful thing to have. I thought it would actually... It resonated far beyond sort of my, you know, the city... And mm -hmm. Westminster, and it's, it continues to uh, interest me that you go along to talk to Conservative groups, and uh, quite often they'll raise the topic of Gordon Brown selling off our gold. Mm -hmm. So there's actually something, there's something very symbolic about it. I think it's probably you know, gold is you know, has a lot, lot of, has value beyond its monetary value mm -hmm. in terms of what it's, it implies in terms of stability and things like that. I think it was also probably one of the first major decisions that Gordon Brown undertook that people clearly thought he got it wrong, mm -hmm. uh, and to flog it at that such a low price and make such a big loss was not really in Britain's long-term economic interest. Um, but, I mean, do you think it has wider significance than just a poor business decision? I'm, I don't know, because I, I, 
Guild is, is historically a, a, place, a, a place where people go in times of economic uncertainty. Mm. To what extent does that affect the way in which countries should today manage their international reserves? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure about the... I mean, well, OK, let's move the conversation on then to the subject of inflation. Now, when, when you guys talk about inflation, when you have your, your meetings and so on, what do you understand by the word? Do you understand it as, as simply rising prices or...? No, I think it's a bit more than that. I mean, I think it's, it, yes, it's partly rising prices, and it, it shows where, you know, what's happening in different sectors of the economy. It's also about signals as well. You know, the fact that sort of price rises in one particular uh, commodity for people who are in the commodities market or for food, you know, sends a signal to people about consumer demand, about mm-hmm. supply, and has an impact upon the economic cha- chain. Let's just assume for the moment it means, it means rising prices, which is how a lot of people understand yeah. it. And um, we have house prices at all-time highs, we have oil at all-time highs, we have various foods at all-time highs, we have almost every metal at all-time highs. You know, everything is becoming much more expensive, and yet the government's measure of this is a mere 2 or 3% a year. Now, that's just not accurate. Well, the cpi index which i think came out about 1.9 percent yeah. yesterday i mean the, the and idea R, that an rpi but you know, th- i think we've got um i mean that that reflects a is meant to reflect a representative basket of things that people buy and you know, the uh, office of national statistics produced a, a do-it-yourself guide to your own inflation rate because people's own personal inflation mm-hmm. rates are very different depending on their circumstances what they buy but the cpi is meant to be uh, representative uh, of that, and of course, it does include goods and services. And so, whilst we might see price of commodities go up, we might see uh, the price of services coming down. And, and I think one of the uh, stories. Do you think it's an accurate measure? It is a measure, and you know, I just you've got to have a benchmark measure. And this is the CPI, is the, the index that is used elsewhere in the European Union. But if we think about, do you have any plans to use a different measure? No, we don't. There's, you know, it's not something we, we've looked at as yet. But you know, if you, people's personal experience is very different. If you go and look at, uh, if you go and buy clothes now, mm-hmm. and you go into Asda or Tesco, you better buy a pair of jeans for a fiver. Whereas 25 years ago, you, you couldn't buy a pair of jeans for a fiver. It has to be 25, 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. By that measure, inflation has fallen. Inflation has fallen. Yeah, but that's to do with increased productivity. Increased and pro- uh, absolutely, but that's. You know, inflation is made up of different characteristics and different goods and services have different prices at different times. I think we've been quite lucky, actually, and I, that in recent years our inflation rate has been kept low because a lot of the goods that we import from places like China have fallen in price. Uh, and, but going back to your issue about commodities, when I was in China last month, the big news was the price of pork was rising, mm-hmm. and that impacted upon the Shanghai Stock Exchange, and the mm-hmm. stock, stock exchange fell. Why? Because actually that meant that the price of Chinese goods was going to go up, make their exports less competitive, and but of course that price increase would flow through to UK domestic insur- uh, inflation. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's a complex reasons why, why one person's perception of inflation would be different to another, but actually these things do actually then all join up, and we, if com- commodity prices are increasing, we will see. What about just the simple kind of old-fashioned measure of inflation, which is simply it's the increase of money in circulation? Well, it's quite interesting because that, 
has pretty much died a death in terms of, sort of yeah. you know, the, the uh, last Conservative government, particularly in the early years, spent a lot of time targeting money supply. Right. And of course that, because it, of its volatility, it fell out of fashion. But it's been quite, it's quite interesting that people are now starting to talk again about money supply mm-hmm. and questioning moves in the uh, various measures of, of money. And, you know, starting to focus on that and saying, well, actually, if money supply is rising so quickly, should we, you know, what impact is that going to have on prices? Well, I mean, because one of the arguments that's doing the rounds at the moment, as I'm sure you know, is that our M4 money supply growth is at between 13 and 14% a year. And that is really what our inflation rate is. The rising prices is simply a symptom of money supply growth. I, I think it would be difficult to say there's a one-for-one relationship between uh, the growth in M4 money and what a- inflation actually is. I think it's a more complex relationship than that. But, it's, but I think it's right that... Uh, Does our much... money supply growth concern you at all? But I was about to say, I think it's right that people look at it and understand what it means for prices, both mm-hmm. now and in, and in the future. And that's why I think you've got, when, when you're looking at uh, inflation and you know, the control of uh, inflation, look at a wide range of different measures... Mm. Uh, and of factors that influence the level of inflation. And that's why I think that you, ha- you have seen the MPC discussing M4 much more. There's been much more discussion about it in mm. the press in the last few months than there has been for some years. Now, would you like to see interest rates go up, interest rates go down? I mean, I have to say, I- I'm, quite a- I'm a scrupulous saver, and I've seen the purchasing power of my pound note declined, I'm 38 years old and if you think what you could buy for a pound note in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s and now, you know, the purchasing power of your pound note is, it's on a huge decline. Is that something that you talk about? Is that something that you consider? Well, I I, I think that the setting of interest rates is by the Monetary Policy Committee and they should get, get on with that job free from interference by politicians in setting the right interest rates to get inflation right. That's fair enough. The, we've been in an environment of, you know, historically very low interest rates. Uh, meanwhile, we've seen our the purchasing power of our pound note or our dollar or whatever our currency is decline. I mean, would you not like to see a rise in interest rates to protect savers? Because at the moment, the, with low interest rates, debtors are rewarded and savers are, are not. I think it's, you know, we set up the MPC to set interest rates and they should just get on with that job and they're, they're there to make sure we have a, a low and stable rate of inflation. Okay. Not your department. No, it's their department. That's, <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, we've got an independent monetary policy committee. The last thing they want is politicians shouting from the sidelines telling them what they should do. That would, that would mm. undermine uh, its independence and I think would actually be damaging to the long-term stability of this country. And so, I mean, how much leaning on those people goes on, do you think, behind the scenes? Well, if it's truly independent, there should be no leaning. But, I mean, I refer you to my earlier comment about the third way, which is that it's independent, but it's not really independent. Well, I, I think that you know, clearly the committee meets and it, it you know, looks at the various economic data. I think that process is independent. Mm. I think what's important to to make sure is that people see that the appointment of members of the MPC is also independent and open and Mm. transparent because that will strengthen people's belief in its independence. I think that's in the long-term interest of the country. Okay. 
Now let's let's move the subject onto the uh, our debt levels, both uh, nationally and, and personally. Is that is that a cause for concern? Is that something you want to address? Yes, it is because I think we saw in the pre-budget report, government uh, announced that uh, an increase in borrowing over the next five years of sixteen billion pounds. Now, you know, that's a, a lot of money. Mm. Uh, and how are they going to pay it back? Well. Uh, yeah, they they always forecast that there'll be a surplus somewhere over the rainbow, uh, and actually, what we have seen over the course of the last seven seven budgets and six of them, the government have said that borrowing is going to be greater than they anticipated in the previous budget. So that there's a systemic bias, I'm afraid, in government forecasting uh, that suggests borrowing will be lower than it turns out to be in reality. What concerns me is that you know, we've had a long period of economic growth. If you look at, at you know, last year, we had growth that was ahead of forecast. Tax revenues were in line with forecast, but borrowing was ahead of forecast. Mm-hmm. There's something that's fundamentally wrong with the shape of government finances, that when times are good, we should, be, you know, we should be in surplus, rather than actually having increasing budget deficits. So we do need to tackle the problem about rising government borrowing. And that's why you know, we believe that the rate of growth of public spending should be less than the rate of growth of the economy as a whole. As a whole. And we call it the sharing proceeds of growth. And that's what's ironically having been criticised by Gordon Brown for this over a number of years. They have now, out of necessity rather than conviction, mm-hmm. been forced to follow this policy. So government spending in the next three years will grow about by 2% per annum, less than the rate of growth of the economy as a whole. So that's another victory chalked up for us. We're persuading <laughs> the government this is our that we've got the right economic policies for people to follow. What about the housing market? Does that concern you? I think that we've got to make sure that uh, the m- people can afford the amounts that they, that they borrow. And clearly the, the strength of the housing market has pushed people to borrow more. And if they can afford it, that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I think historically we've used credit as an, e- as an evil thing. But now I think it's, it's an accepted part of life as long as people can afford to service the debt that they've got. Do you think it's going to continue rising? Do you think we're due a pullback? I think the best thing about politicians is never to predict the economy. <laughs> you, get, you can get your fingers burnt very easily. We'll have to wait and see what happens. I think there's so many factors that affect uh, housing uh, demand and supply. But I think what we've, one of the things we have to recognise is that for young people to get on the housing ladder, they need some support from government, which is why we announced... Uh, at our party conference that would exempt uh, first-time buyers from stamp duty if their properties were less than a quarter of a million pounds because they, people do need a bit of a, a leg up onto the housing ladder. The boom in the housing market in the last, I don't know, 15 years, however long it's been, is, is, it's, it's unprecedented in our history. What do you think has been driving it? Um, I think that people have been able to afford to borrow more. You know, because actually we've seen a, a reduction level of interest rates. You know, mm. people are, you know, we don't see interest rates in, uh, you know, in the high teens now. We, we see them in the you know, between 4 and 6%. That actually increases people's ability to borrow more, and I think that helps fuel house prices. People Mark, are prepared to pay more. hit the nail as far as I'm concerned, right on the head. I'm so pleased you didn't try and say something else. It's, it's easy money. Yeah, and that's a... Yeah, that, it helps people buy a bigger house, but actually all it does, it, it does fuel house price growth. So and of course, it, you know, I just think that for that to, you know, if, if we have a stable economy, then people should be able to continue to afford to service that debt. If the economy mm-hmm. 
if there's a downturn, the same way the government will find the economic downturn problems in servicing the debt it's uh, acquired over recent years, then consumers might find that difficult too. But what, we're, what we seem to be faced with at the moment is, like you say, it, as long as people can service the debt, then it's fine. But with interest rates just creeping up, more and more people are struggling to service that debt. And at the same time, we have, even though the CPI says it's only 1.9%, we have some inflation on our hands, which to tackle, you need to raise interest rates. But if you raise interest rates, you pop the debt bubble. Yes, yeah, so we've seen repossessions increase. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot. I think quite a lot of people have got mortgages uh, that are coming up for uh, review this autumn, mm-hmm. and and they were done two or three years ago. Interest rates were a bit lower. Yeah. Uh, so some people will will find it a struggle. Of course, you know, we are seeing uh, real disposable income fall at the moment because although CPI is 1.9 percent retail price in. Uh, inflation, the, the measure that mm-hmm. we've usually used is about 4%. People see their council tax bills uh, go up by you know, 4 or 5%. So the people start to see a squeeze on their incomes, and that, that, will, that could lead to a problem. I have to say, Mark, I think there's a real problem, and I think it's less than two years away. And, you know, if you believe the polls and you'd had your election this November and you'd won, you would have the problem to deal with. But Gordon's choked, and it now doesn't look like there's going to be a, an election before 2009. So the problem's going to be on his watch. Well, I mean, we, we hope that there won't be a problem. We don't want to see people lose no. their houses. We don't want to see repossessions go up. And actually, we would much rather we had a you know, period of economic stability. Do you not think a recession is healthy? No, I think people who lose their jobs in a recession wouldn't think that No, that, that I'm, not, healthy. I'm not. And I just, you know, I... I but if I you have don't, seasons, you can't be summer all the time. You have to have a bit of winter. I think you want an economy that it is stable, that grows at a steady rate with reasonable uh, inflation rates and low interest rates. And I think that, that picture of economic stability is what all governments should be aiming for, whether the Conservative or Labour. I don't think you can have low inflation and low interest rates. You can't have one without the... Uh, you, you, if you have low interest rates, you get inflation. But in, you know, at the moment, we have interest... You know, you, the, the Bank of England targets are... Um, inflation rates and yeah. will adjust interest rates accordingly and you know, sometimes it will need to increase them and sometimes it will need to re- reduce them to stay on that, that target mm-hmm. uh, but I think you know, the, oblig- the duty that's on politicians is to do all that they can to ensure there's economic stability and that's why it's our first priority Now there's, um, I'm sure you've heard about this, there's a s- study on taxation and uh, they found that in a lower taxation environment, the government revenues actually increase. Is that something you've thought about? Yes, and uh, there's a lot of uh, economic debate about supply, you know, the supply-side yeah. effects of, of tax cuts. We, we believe that you can't rely, re- rely upon those supply-side effects. They're not easy to predict. Mm-hmm. And I think actually what if we want to have economic stability, what we need to do is to make sure that any tax cuts we have are funded, mm-hmm. rather than gambling on there being a big supply-side effect. So you know, the package that we yes. put forward at the time of the Conservative Party conference on inheritance tax and stamp duty was balanced by tax increases mm-hmm. elsewhere on, on non-DOMs. Uh, you know, we are going to change the way in which we tax pollution 
and the money re- revenue raised from that will be used to reduce taxes on families. So you know, we want to make sure that any tax cuts we propose are funded. We've obviously seen a huge growth in the public sector under, under Gordon's watch. There we go. Big Ben. <laughs> what does that mean? Is that, is it that means it's quarters as well. Quarters, quarters as well. Um, I forgot what my question was. Yes, the, the increase in the, the public sector workforce. Yeah. Is that something you would like to see decrease? Well, what we've said is that we will uh, increase public spending at a slower rate than the economy uh, as a whole. So over time, this would mean that the size of the national income of the state, it means over time, the size of the state mm-hmm. as a proportion of national income will shrink. And I think that's, that's right. I mean, that will enable us to reduce the burden of taxation, but also to tackle the growing gov- budget deficit as well. Excess and incompetent spending in the public sector, what can be done about it? Well, it is, I mean, staggering, frankly, and I ask a lot of questions about waste. And do you know that the normal... Have you read the the, the bumper book of government waste? Well, I fear that some of my parliamentary questions might be in there. (laughs) Because I asked a question a couple of weeks ago about how much does the Northern Ireland office spend on flowers. Now... You, know, you can pluck a figure out of the air, but I doubt you'd think it was t- as much as £20,000. I didn't think that. Uh, and the Department of Work and Pensions is at the bottom end of the scale, spending only £40. Uh, so there is a lot of government waste yeah. around there. And you know, I just think one of the duties of a politician, uh, whether in the, spe- in the spending department or in the Treasury, is to think that the money that you're spending is not your own personal money, is actually taxpayers' money, and that you need to spend it wisely and carefully. It doesn't mean to say that mistakes won't be made, but actually you need to spend that money wisely and just think this is not your money that's being spent. Do you not think this loose spending, this casual attitude to money, this casual attitude to debt, all these areas that we've kind of covered, is all a symptom of this inflationary low-interest environment? No, I think it's. I think in terms of when it comes to how governments spend their money, I think it, they they forget that it's not their money to spend, and that's why I think it's done in a very casual fashion. And I think it's also part. Of, it's there's a wider cultural issue. Uh, I mean, I talked about the flowers. I asked another government department how much it plans to spend on advertising, and the systems don't tell them. Now, as someone who used to practice as an accountant, I found that astonishing. And so I just think there's a cultural thing in government about a lack of discipline and lack of rigour in the way in which people account for the money that they, they control and they spend on our behalf. And I think that's a big problem in central government and something that we need to tackle. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's there, but I just don't think it's just in government. I think it's a national thing. Now, would you ever consider a return to some kind of asset-backed currency? No, I don't. No, I wouldn't think about going back to an asset-backed currency. I mean, you know, if where would you find the assets first of all? Well, we to, if you wanted to use gold, you, we can't do that because we've sold <laughs> exactly. I I just think that I think that's difficult. I I just think there is a cultural change yeah. in society uh, that we need to recognise and accept. And you know, for individuals, it's fine for them to waste money, to make the wrong choice, to buy the wrong car, buy mm. the wrong house. You know, that's the choice that they, that they make. Government, it's, it's different, and that we actually need to be m- much more prudent, to use an old-fashioned word that mm-hmm. Gordon Brown has forgotten about recently, about how we spend our money. I think society 
has become accustomed to easy money mm-hmm. uh, because credit is much more accessible than it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. You don't have to go and see the bank manager now every time you want to increase your overdraft or buy a new car or get mm-hmm. a credit card out. And I don't think that there is a problem necessarily with the con- in that context that credit is, is widely available, and that's fine. I think what we do need to do is to make sure people have the tools to help them understand the consequences of that increased availability in credit. So they think, think much more about how much they're borrowing, how long they're going to repay, how, how long they will take to repay it, what their overall liabilities are, the need to stay, save some money for a rainy day. I think if people become much more financially literate and capable, mm-hmm. I think that will help tackle the imbalance about the availability of cheap credit. Does it concern you that we're leaving the next generation to a rather a lot of debt? Well, the, obviously you've got government debt which is intergenerational. I think for personal debt, yeah, the, the, you know, people will rack up quite big debts over their lifetime, but their heirs will also potentially inherit some quite valuable assets too. <laughs> Like what? Oh, people set their houses. You know, parents' houses are going up in value. As you struggle to buy your own, you can, you, know, you can sit there and watch your parents, you know, thinking about their own house going up in value and getting warm, cosy glow from that. Um. <laughs> there's, inter- there's intergenerational wealth transfer going on there. Well, yeah, but I mean, the thing is, the house may have gone up in pound terms, but it's still the same house. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But only this one's got a mortgage on it. The last yeah. generations one didn't. Okay, well, I'll just quickly ask you, um, by the way, Mark, my, if you leave this interview with one thing, I want you to leave it with a tip to read the bumper book of Government Waste. Right. It is, it's a, you never, you're an accountant, so you, it's comedy, comedy numbers. But, uh, you know, I've got in front of us, Dominic, a, a hundred questions. Yeah. Uh, which I'm, I'm say, telling you, read it, I'm telling yeah, you no, it on the tube. But, I'm but not, I, I'm I tell you, I tell you. I come across so many examples of government waste, and yeah. it's, it actually comes as no surprise to me whether it's the £20,000 that the North Island office spend on flowers, yeah, okay. or the many millions that are wasted on big IT projects. <laughs> anyway, we, we, frankly, in Westminster, we live surrounded by the signs of government waste. Okay, I, I'm sure you do, but it's, it's nevertheless oh, it's, it's phrased wittily. <laughs> it's worth it for that, that alone. Now, let's just quickly, how much do you follow when, you, when in the uh, Tory party or your, your section of the Tory party? How much do you follow the price of commodities? Do you, do you follow it at all? And how significant do you see it as being? Well, I think it's, it's an important fact. It's not something that we would look at on a regular basis. But I think we're conscious that the price of commodities does have an impact upon the wider economy and are you know, keen to understand why, you know, why we're seeing commodity prices rise at the moment, what that, what that tells us about the global economy. And, I mean, in general terms, do you, what, what would you say, for example, what's, what's driving oil to the, these high prices? Well, I think that, uh, obviously, you've got uh, international instability, mm-hmm. and so the recent peaks are attributed often to you know, instability in Iran and Iraq, places like that. But also, we are going through, uh, in some parts of the world, you know, quite a big industrialisation and if I go back to my experience in, in China uh, last month, you know, the demand for natural resources from China is such that it will drive up commodity prices. I mean, someone, there's a story in the paper on TV a few weeks ago about brass doorknobs being pinched uh, for re- sending back to China to be recycled. Um, and people thought this is preposterous. I think it's actually quite real. And it just shows that, that, yeah, the thirst for natural resources 
from the industrialising countries of Asia and South America really is drive, helping to drive that price up. Um, my view, Mark, is that there are two drivers. One is that thirst for resources that you've just described, and the other is easy money, loose monetary policy. And you, you kind of you snorted a bit when I talked about an asset-backed currency, but my belief is that we're headed for a serious monetary crisis, an inflationary one, and in some stage we're going to have to devise, they're going to have to back paper with something real. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Do we'll you, see. Um, what scares you more, inflation or deflation? It's a very good question, actually. I think in the, uh, you want to say, we should accept there's always going to be a degree of inflation. In fact, the Bank of England target always accepts there's going to be a degree of inflation in the economy. So I suppose if you ask me the question, what scares me more, deflation or excessive inflation, mm -hmm. I'd actually probably say excessive inflation. I'd love to see deflation. I'm a saver. Like well, but I, you know, I think about those people in employment um, who would be concerned about the impact of deflation. But on if the they're in employment on a fixed wage, then deflation would suit them. I'm not sure. I agree with you. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, Mark. It's it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and thanks very much for sparing the time. Um, if uh, our listeners want to find out more about who you are and what you do, do you want to give out a website? Or yeah. Uh, www w.markhopen.com or you can email me at mail at markhopen.com Okay, Mark, thanks very much. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. So, Michael Hampton is with me now and Mike, you're a long-time UK housing bear. The charts of the builders the uk builders barrett and the others just look awful and they've gone down so quickly yeah well, they've all completely broken down and i you know i think what's interesting about this week is uh the number of uh profoundly bearish um headlines that we've had and uh you know this is a what in some some people call a moment of recognition and that's a time when uh, the general public wakes up that there's actually a serious problem and uh, denial uh, is what happens until that moment is reached and I think this week um, is you know pretty much the end of denial um, you know the, the, we've been saying on these discussions and uh, on various postings that you know the, the markets had it that a top was going to come in the summer and uh, we started expecting that in, uh, you know, what the spring, uh, because of the breakdown in the builders. I mean, Barrett, you know, which traded as high as about 1300p, broke through a thousand or something. And, you know, we were talking in the spring that that was an important break. And that was sort of giving us an indication that a top, you know, in the physical market was due a few months later, probably the summer. And then we did the interview in July, uh, July the 4th, I think it was, with uh, uh, Marin and uh, Rigglesworth. Um, by that time, the builders had really fallen, and I was talking about uh, how they were forecasting a you know, coming slide. Uh, well, now Barrett is down, uh, you know, dramatically lower. It's in the 700s now. It's in the 600s. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I'm a little out of date here. The 600s. Um, 
you know, that's a huge drop. I mean, that's really uh, come down, you know, to half of, of where it was at the peak. We've got a 50% drop. Now, I don't think that the UK property market can dodge a bullet like that when uh, Barrett has dropped uh, that much that it can escape without a pretty severe drop in, in, in prices. And, you know, I think the rally in prices, the gains that were occurred from 2005 into 2007, those gains will be retraced pretty quickly. And, you know, a year from now, I think by, by then, we probably will have seen about 10 or 15 percent uh, that came out of the average house from 2005 through 2007. I think that could easily be retraced in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, maybe a year from now, we'll see all of that gain come off, uh, off the price. Um, so this week, um, we had the press finally waking up. Um, to the fact that there's a problem. And that was triggered by, um, was it the European Central Bank, or um, I'm trying to remember exactly who the... I think it was the IMF, official, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, of course, it was the IMF, yeah, that came out and said, uh, you know, the UK has a problem, prices could fall 40%. And uh, the press, which uh, has been waiting for some kind of authority to... Uh, to uh, to come out and uh, make a comment like that so that they could cite someone else, uh, they jumped on it. And so we got, I'll just read three headlines that we got. Um, and you can see that, you know, there are different levels of seriousness um, from these different headlines. The Times headline, um, and this was what, Wednesday or Thursday? Uh, Wednesday, I think. The headline was, UK house market is, quote, headed for a crash. And then they go on to talk about the IMF report. And then the Daily Telegraph comes out and says, quote, property market in danger of slump, says IMF. Um, and now, uh, so that's a little bit less bearish sounding than the Times headline. And now here, what do we get from the BBC? Quote, UK house prices at risk of fall. Okay, well, I mean, that's, that's pretty tame, isn't it? I mean, there's already been a fall a couple of months, and clearly we're going to get a third month of price falls. What's really interesting, though, is that you know here it is September uh, in October, and normally there's a seasonal uptick uh, this time of the year. Well, instead the, the physical market's down. So, you know, if we as we go into the week seasonally weak times of the year, this is going to get really serious. The the Telegraph has been writing bearish articles for a while. What was really surprising is that the Times should come out and uh, you know twist the IMF report to such a bearish stance. Well, you know maybe there's a bit of catch up going on. Um, you know the, the, the Times reporters must be aware that um, that they haven't been as bearish as uh, some of the other press on property and. They may now be wanting to catch up a little bit, um, and that might be part of the reason that, that they've come out with the bearish spin, if, if indeed that's what they've done. When the Daily Mail starts putting out bearish reports, then you know things are really bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Well, what are you actually physically seeing on the ground where you live? Because, I mean, you, you're living in one of the more bullish and, uh, you know, stronger areas. Well, I, I'm in Wandsworth, and uh, it uh, in 2000 and from... Winter of 2005 through till uh, last spring, it just went mental. It was absolutely crazy. And, uh, I mean, Wandsworth is a nice borough, and I can understand why people want to live here. But my um, one of my next-door neighbours is a, an, an estate agent in Ballam, 
and she just says it's gone dead, and the market's been dead since June. Well, you know, this is that, uh, you know, another way of thinking about this time is, you know, you've, we've all seen that cartoon character that goes running off the cliff, and, you know, he, his, his, his uh, feet are still turning, and he hasn't started to fall yet, and he doesn't actually start to fall until he looks down and realizes there's no ground beneath him, and then he starts to fall. And that's the sort of moment that I think we're at right now in the property market, the physical property market in a lot of places. Uh, at first, there are no transactions. And, uh, you know, people kind of look down and say, uh-oh, the market's going to go lower. But they don't know how much lower. And what happens now, and this is really interesting, and I think it's something about psychology of markets, is what happens now is uh, everyone can see that there's going to be a downturn. So the only way that a seller can sell is by creating an illusion of a bargain. So the seller has to actually price his property below the so-called market. And, you know, make 5 or 10% below in order to get a sale. So the buyer then says, right, well, I'm not paying at the top. This is coming to me 5 or 10% cheaper than, quote, unquote, the market. And therefore, it's worth buying. And, hey, prices might go back up. So that kind of logic is what's in the mind of the buyer. Now, the problem with that is that you know, if you have a few transactions that are 5 to 10% down, well, guess what? The new market level is 5 or 10% lower. And then to, cre you know, to create the next sale, uh, you now have to price it an another 5 to 10% lower in order to make the next round of sales. So through these progressive rounds of, of discounting, uh, the price comes down. And then at some point, you know, this whole thing turns into a panic and people can see that there's downward momentum and, you know, you people have to price even lower. So, you know, that's the kind of moment we're at right now. It'll be, you know, interesting. Uh, and, you know, I'm saying this from, from the point of view of being a, you know, bystander. Uh, you know, I don't have any position in the UK. I have an increasing position in, in Hong Kong, but, you know, that's a completely different story. Yeah, I mean, we're only in the early stages of that where, you know, I think only a few people are dropping prices. But uh, one thing that's definitely happening, happening over the course of this autumn, and the politicians know it because Mark Hoban mentioned it, is the mm. fact that so many mortgages are due for reset and they're going to be reset at a higher rate. Well, isn't it funny? I mean, we've got exactly the same sort of pattern as the U.S., but it's just a lag. It's just behind. I mean, as I've been saying various places that, you know, the U.K. was 17 months behind the U.S. Well, that the, the time gap is going to shrink here because the, the U.S. problems and, and, and the mention of them in the press and the pattern that people can see developing there will cause people to realize, you know, markets are a learning process. And, you know, when markets go up or go down, there's a kind of learning process going on where people are learning from recent events and then beginning to anticipate the future and those anticipations and th changes of thought is what moves the market. Well, people are learning uh, from what's happening in the UK, but they're also learning from what's happening in the US. So, you know, the market in the US is falling and it, it causes people to look across the water and it speeds things up a bit here. So now as these same types of events happen, uh, the price cuts, the discounting, the, the lending problems, the tightening of the lenders, um, you know, I think that gap is going to narrow. And, it, you know, I don't think it's 17 months anymore. It might be, you know, more like 12 months. Yeah. Ago. But, I mean, it's definitely an opportunity to see what's coming, to look over at the states. But one of the arguments that gets trotted out, and there is some truth to it, is the fact that in the states you can pretty much build what you like, where you like, whereas we're an yep. island and uh, it, there is, we're a lot more cramped for space. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a real argument, but it's also partly a false argument. I'd like to talk about that. Um, yes, there, the, the supply situation is constrained to some degree in the in the, in, in, in the UK, and indeed it, it is in certain parts of the US. I mean, New York City has many of the same problems. Has New York City seen declines in the way that other places have? Well, you know, like London, it's a financial uh, economy. So you know, as, as these stock markets, uh, I mean, we were down over three hundred points uh, today. I guess we'll talk about that later. But um, you, you know, yesterday. Uh, my time, um, it, it's a big drop. But I mean, basically, the, the the stock markets are pretty near to their highs. So, the financial economy in Wall Street in London has not been seeing a lot of layoffs yet. I mean, that is definitely coming, and that that I think is comes back to my original point about supply versus demand in the UK. I mean, uh, yes, the supply is constrained to some degree as it is in parts of the US. Um, and demand is helped by uh, immigration into the UK. But what's really interesting about that factor is um, the net immigration between the UK and rich countries is now negative. Um, there are fewer Americans living in the UK now than, than there were you know, five or ten years ago. And there are fewer people from richer countries living in the UK than there were a few years ago. I think they're finding it pretty difficult to live with some of the uh, policies and the inflations and other tax increases and so forth that people are seeing in the UK. But the, so the, the immigration that's coming into the UK is really from poor countries. And are you sure about that? that? I mean, we've got lots of yeah. people coming from Russia and rich Russians and... Okay. Well, I don't know exactly where Russia is in this formula. There's certainly rich, rich Russians coming in. And the rich find, you know, the UK to be a tax haven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to change. Uh, you know, even the Tories are talking about some change in uh, how 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 the wealthy are taxed. I mean, and you know, look as as the economy goes into the toilet. I mean, I think the jealousy factor is going to get even bigger in the UK. And you know, people who are suffering and having problems paying their mortgages, they're they're not going to want to see the rich have a feast in London. I mean, there's going to be some blowback, and there's going to be some serious, um, you know. Uh, Talk of, of taxing and taxing more the you know the wealthy who seem to be getting off too lightly now in the UK, um, and you know guess what is is if, if those taxes change you know some of those people who've been flooding into the UK they're going to go back, and so on the high end you're getting a you know the wealthy have been flooding in they might, won't necessarily continue to flood in they may look for other places where the tax regime is better or. Uh, or uh, you know maybe the, the the economy looks better, and you're going to have a, a you know the, the the people in the city getting hit by job cuts, and you know eventually you're going to you know as as, as people need fewer builders and uh, plumbers and whatnot, you're going to have fewer jobs for the poles and the other Eastern Europeans that have come into the UK. So you know you add all that up, and you know this what's been helping the, the property market on the demand side. Is, is, is going to dry up. But then, of course, the speculative demand is the biggest component of demand. That's going to go from huge to negative. I mean, you know, um, uh, people, speculators, are going to be net sellers of property from here. So we've got, uh, we've got loads of, sorry to interrupt you, Michael, we've got loads of uh, houses that are being done up around where we are, and uh, the workforce is almost entirely Polish. And they're all uh, sleeping in caravans. There are just loads of caravans parked in the area on all the streets where there's no residents parking, and uh, all the Polish builders are sleeping in caravans. So, 
they might be doing places up, but they're certainly not paying rent. <laughs> well, yeah, well, exactly, and, and you know, and they they live three and four to a place. But I mean, those folks are are in the UK. Do you know what the, un the unemployment rate in Poland was two or three years ago? Nine percent. Nine percent. I mean, I think it's it's fallen back to six or seven percent now. Things are going a bit better in Poland, and there are fewer workers still left. I think we've um, got a million poles here now. Yeah, well, you know, that's a million poles, but it may not be a million poles in two, three years' time. It might be 800,000 or something. So, you know, you, you're going to have the possibility of this factor, which has been helping demand, you know, more poles coming in, and other Eastern Europeans, Bulgarians and, and, and other people who, by the way, I, I think they're very hardworking and probably good people for the economy in many ways. Those folks are going to be going back home, you know, if... if the relative economy is improving at home. And, you know, guess what? There are signs that Germany is stirring. I mean, maybe they'll go to Germany from the UK. If they speak German, that might be easy for them. Um, and by the way, Germany has restricted um, polls coming into their country. And that restriction is going to evaporate, I think, about a year's time. I mean, uh, you know, that's, I think, worth a separate show on international property and German property. I hope you do one at some point, because I think it would be really interesting. Um, but anyway, so the, my point is that you know, you've got speculative demand melting away. You're going to have perhaps fewer people, uh, very rich and poor people, immigrating into the UK. You're going to have fewer people wanting to buy and invest bonuses because the bonuses are going to be lower, you know, from the city. Um, so on the demand side, there's going to be a big drop. And on the supply side, you know, yeah, I mean, it's maybe harder to build prices, but there are a lot of places that are empty. Uh, people have been sitting out waiting to sell, and you know you're going to find those places now for sale. You're going to find forced sales from people who are having financial difficulties. So the supply-demand balance is going to shift and pretty dramatically over the next year or two. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with most of what you're saying, but I don't see any let-up in immigration coming. Well, I mean, people are coming for jobs, and if the jobs yeah. aren't there, they're going to stop coming. I think one thing that will have a big difference, uh, and let's just uh, see what your crystal ball says about this, and that's uh, because sterling is so strong at the moment, uh, it pays for people to come here and earn, earn pounds and send the pounds back home. Mm -hmm. Do you see, where do you see sterling's strength from here? Do you see it increasing or decreasing? Relative to what? Ha! <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, that's a serious a basket, question. Yeah, I mean, I, I know. I'm, I'm. The reason I snorted like that is because I don't know. Because I mean, relative to the dollar, I see it probably increasing. But relative to say, I don't know. The that's the problem. Every all, every currency is decreasing. Let's, well, I mean, let's you know, relative to the Canadian dollar, the euro, the uh, and the US dollar. Let's 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 look at those. Well, I mean, let's 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 divide the world into blocks. One block is the dollar. Uh, another block would be Western European currencies, and and you know, uh, and then another block would be the commodity currencies. And here we're talking the Australian dollar and the Canadian dollar, and another block would be the Asian currencies. So, I mean, I, I see the uh, the Asian currencies being, and I just, by the way, the final currency might be gold. I mean, I think gold would probably be the strongest currency. Uh, uh, with some competition coming from the yen and maybe even the yuan and the Singapore dollar and so forth, and and, and even even the laggard currencies in 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 Asia have been doing pretty well. I mean, you know, currencies like the uh, Indonesian rupiah and the, uh, 
uh, Philippine peso, even have done pretty well recent Korean won. Um, so I see the Asian currencies as being relatively strong. Um, the euro might lose some of its uh, of its of its recent strength. Uh, the dollar, of course, is the basket case. Well, I put the pound somewhere between, uh, well, in the future, somewhere between the dollar and the euro. Um, and there are going to be periods when, you know, the dollar has a bit of strength. I mean, it's selling off just at the moment, and that's helping gold prices. But I think you're going to find that now that the U.K. economy is slowing down and there's perhaps talk of rate cuts, I don't know if that came up in your interview with the politician, but, um, you know, a slower UK economy should mean a weaker pound. Okay. Well, I take it you're not buying uh, UK property at the moment. Are you oh, no. buying gold at the at the moment at these prices? Um, look, gold, gold. Uh, you know, long term is great, and even medium term is great. But very short term, uh, you know, I've come out and said I'm bearish on gold and gold shares for the next three to six weeks. I said that in the last interview. Uh, Gold prices are actually a little bit higher, but gold shares, which is what I trade, are lower. They they made a peak well, about a week ago, um, you know, right around the time of our last interview. Um, and you know, so I'm I'm happily uh, sitting with a fair amount of cash, a, a rising amount of cash. I'm selling every day, um, and uh, you know, I'm somewhere considering my hedges somewhere around thirty percent into cash at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, that's comfortable, and I, I'll probably take that higher. Because I, I see gold shares and gold coming off from here. Uh, we were talking before the show about the, the Commitment of Traders report, mm -hmm. and that certainly looks very bearish. Um, what do you think about the argument that uh, James Turk and Bill Murphy and others are putting forward that sooner or later there's going to be a squeeze, a short squeeze, in the, uh, in the, in the COMEX and... That's what we're seeing now. Yeah, well, it, you know, it may be what we're seeing now. I mean, you know, I talked about the slingshot many months ago. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing too. Is that there was money on the sidelines that got out of gold, and 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 then when you know when when that money started coming back in, and plus new players came in, we got this big move in gold. Well, a lot of the traditional gold investors are back in, and what's what's driving this, in my my view, is new investors are coming and new people are discovering gold. Well, this isn't going to happen in a straight line. There's going to be corrections. So, in my view, that this big jump in the in the uh, commercial shorts, um, and they usually get it right. Um, so, a big jump would be bearish normally. I see this as a kind of kickoff. Um, basically, what's happened is the new buyers have come along and signaled their hand. Hey, guys, we're in the market now. You know, we'll probably be here for a while. Uh, you can't ignore us anymore. It's a new ball game, and that's what the market's telling us right now. But I don't think we're going to the gold price is going to go much higher from here. I think it'll pull back because that first burst of enthusiasm, if you will, amongst these new buyers will be followed by a pause, and you know they'll they'll uh, they'll be a bit of selling, and uh, that that's the period I'm looking for dead ahead is you know three to six weeks of. Uh, of, of declines in gold, maybe not very dramatic ones, back towards 700. I mean, 712, I think, is my ideal level, but uh, we may not see that. Um, you know, it, that pause, that retracement, will, will actually provide us with a buying opportunity, mm -hmm. if, if we see it. <laughs> well, 
I hope we do, because I'm sitting on the sidelines with a load of cash as well. Um, Mike, uh, why don't you tell listeners how they can find uh, your website? Yes, um, the usual way, which would be to uh, go to www.globaledgeinvestors.com. Good stuff, and um, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.